Welcome to the CEC report for the 16th of June 2017. I'm Elisa Barwick and joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome Craig. Yeah, thanks Elisa. And on today's show, banks may have dodged a bullet but they face a barrage and Anglo-American order in disarray, time for Australian independence. So, very interesting news, Craig, over the last 24 hours. Uh, banks may have dodged a bullet, but they face a barrage. Now, the bullet that we're talking about is a bill that came through the Australian, uh, was tabled in the Australian Parliament yesterday, passed the Senate first, and then it went up to the House of Representatives. And this bill was put forward by the Greens to establish a commission of inquiry into the banks and that is as powerful as a royal commission into the banks. Um, so it didn't pass the House of Representatives unfortunately, however that was just by one vote. So the, the banks really narrowly averted uh, being under intense scrutiny here uh, and it is very good news Craig because it means that finally the popular upsurge against the banks and the fact that they get away with blue murder in looting the population, gambling like crazy, uh, the day, their days are numbered and the politicians are beginning to realise that if they don't reflect that, they'll be out of a job. Yeah, Lisa, it was interesting that the uh, Speaker casting vote that got this, or, you know, through this legislation out. But as you say, look, the issue for the Australian population is are we going to continue with the last 40 to 50 years of policy, economic policy, which has been dictated by the banking system. Now, most people would agree that our politicians, as just indicated, are terrified about taking on the power of the banks. Mm -hmm. And this is a question about power, because what we're proposing, the Citizens Electoral Council is proposing, is that we need a national bank, a national bank modelled on the same idea of what the Commonwealth Bank used to be uh, where, for example, during World War II, Curtin and Chifley used the Commonwealth Bank to actually finance the war, but also to control the private banks. Mm -hmm. And after the war, Chifley tried to uh, have the power of the Commonwealth Bank strengthened by nationalising all the private banks because he said the issue here is who owns the credit of the nation, mm -hmm. who makes the policy to decide where the credit goes into the nation for its development. And this was a big fight in the 1930s when Chifley was on the uh, Banking Royal Commission back then. And he wrote a special dissenting report saying essentially that when the private banks have the decisions and the power to make decisions uh, on where the credit is directed into the economy, then the economy will always be put uh, second in the interest of the, to the interest of the private bankers. And that's why we had the Great Depression. It's because time and time again there were calls for massive injections of credit into the physical economy. Jack Lang, uh, sorry, Ted Theodore, for example, wanted to print 18 million pound of fiduciary credit, that is money not backed by gold. It all had to be backed by gold back in the 1930s and spend that into public works. This was exactly, or well, the idea of creating that credit was exactly what was done by Roosevelt mm. prior to World War II. So here you had an example of this idea of public credit in the hands of government being injected into the economy for the benefit of public works, the benefit of the all, you know, the general welfare. Today we have a banking system that's privately run, privately controlled, and they control the political classes that we have in the parliament, as was just seen. Now that's breaking down and will break down further 
simply because, as we've said many times on this show, the global financial crisis of 2007, 8 and 9 has never been solved. Yeah. We've got a, a, a massive too big to fail problem. Now, there's been all sorts of, you know, fiddling on the side controls by the International Monetary Fund, by the Bank of International Settlements, the Global Financial Stability Board, bringing in all sorts of new requirements, thing, things like total loss absorbing capacity, you know, so that if a bank does go down, you know, you know the, the, the government doesn't have to bail them out. And I think one of the very clear things here in Australia is that the assumption by the banks already is that no matter what, the government will bail them out. Exactly. And that history that you went through, that really shows the lie, which is the, the main line that's been put over the Australian population and you know, everywhere across the media and so forth and globally, uh, that you can't allow banks to fail. They're too big to fail because you, if you were to rein them in in some capacity, you'll be undermining their ability to raise credit on international markets. Uh, you'll be undermining the Australian economy. You know, what we've done in the past proves that it, our economy functions better. We can raise more credit when the government harnesses the institution of national banking and where the private banks are also kept in line by that government banking function. Well, it's, it's a question of where the credit is directed, Elisa. And during the war, the Commonwealth Bank directed the private banks to lend money into the productive sectors, into supporting farmers, right? This is not something that's terribly profitable for the banks, so they, they have to be, in a sense, directed to do that. Now, that's the role of a, of a strong Commonwealth National Bank, of a strong government, in order to, to put the credit where it's needed into productive sectors. When the private banks are only interested in profits for their shareholders, private profits, then they're going to put their money wherever they think that they can get the biggest mm -hmm. return. And what's happened in the last 30 years is that we've seen the deregulation of the banking system because of the takedown of Glass-Steagall reg regulations, which stopped uh, all these investment and merchant banking functions from, from grabbing hold of people's deposits. Uh, that's all been taken down, so what you've seen today is a huge increase mm. in the bank's gambling assets, which we call derivatives, and it's jumped up to something like $35 mm. trillion national capital value of these things that didn't exist pretty much before 1990. Mm -hmm. And this is the nature of the global financial system. On a massive scale, we say there could be up to something like $2 quadrillion of these derivatives in the system. No one knows because they're what they're called, what's called off the over the counter, I mean they're off the normal books of banks. And this is what's threatening the entire system. Why we've come back many times to call, and this is what in a sense this commission yeah. would have been would trying have to get to, to, to yeah. is two things. First of all, a PCORA commission. Now the PCORA commission is a term that we use for a commission that was set up in 1933 by Ferdinand PCORA who was uh, a prosecutor for the government against the banks. And what he did was he brought the big bankers to an inquiry and allowed them to tell their story. And what happened was, for the first time in American history, the public got to learn how they were being swindled, how the banks were actually operating. And this created the political climate at that time for Franklin Roosevelt to bring in a secondary, or a whole raft of other legislation, actually, but Glass-Steagall legislation, actually. And what this did, it stopped the banks at that time from getting their hands on the depositors' funds and using them for speculative purposes. 
and uh, that then stabilised the banking system for the next 60 years mm -hmm. up until 1999 when unfortunately Bill Clinton uh, repealed the Glass-Steagall Act and from that point forward, actually mm -hmm. a bit before that, you've seen nothing more than a huge blowout in the global speculative uh, bubble. Mm. And this has led to an, a secondary bubble, which we've talked about now, which is, this, which is the corporate debt bubble. Back in 2008, uh, you, we, we, because this issue was never solved then, we didn't have Glass-Steagall instituted, you had a bailout, a massive bailout of trillions of dollars at very low interest, if not no interest, going in from the Federal Reserve into the banking system. And the banks got that and they loaned it at very low, if not zero, interest rates to corporations. Those corporations then went on a huge buying a buyback scheme for their shares, which of course has seen the stock market go through the roof. Uh, and also be, they've been lending out uh, corporate debt, creating a debt bubble, which the IMF warned about a month ago, would blow up to blow out and destroy 20% of all corporations in the United States even with small increases in interest rates. And there's also already, you know, they're forecasting an increase in interest rates uh, later on this year. So the, the whole system is to, is still teetering mm. and, you know, we need a Glass-Steagall down and here. This call for a parliamentary inquiry uh, has not ended uh, for a um, commission well, this of is the background. the banks. This is the background yeah. upon which this discussion is taking place. Well, so you know, it was the definition of close votes um, and the government's going to have to be extremely wary when, of when it comes up again of not having anyone out sick. I mean, on this particular vote, Julie Bishop was not actually there. Um, the Nationals uh, MP, George Christensen, who had said he would actually cross the floor to vote for it, was reportedly strong-armed by Treasurer Scott Morrison and by Barnaby Joyce to not do that, but, you know, is that going to remain in force? And the Speaker used the casting vote to close debate, you know, to shut it down. So the bill remains in Parliament. Uh, Greens and Labor are saying they will pursue it to another vote. And also it's being reported that if it were to pass, it could become a vote of no confidence in the government because the last time the government lost a vote in the House of Representatives was 1929. But there's a whole host of other, uh, a barrage as we say, of actions against the banks. Uh, we don't have time to go through them all today, but you can read more about it in this week's Australian Alert Service. Call us and we'll send you a, a free complimentary copy. And, uh, you know, it's going to become harder and harder for the banks to withstand this as popular support continues to move against them. But we're going to talk more about uh, the background internationally of the global financial meltdown, bringing this on, bringing it to a head right after this quick break. Welcome back to the CC Report, where we're discussing how the banks narrowly dodged a bullet in terms of the vote in the Australian Parliament yesterday for a banking commission of inquiry. It hasn't passed yet, but, you know, it's there. It's like the sword of Damocles hanging over the heads of the Australian Parliament. Um, now, just to give the background to this of what's happening worldwide in terms of the new global financial crash, which has been brewing for some time, uh, we've got a developing situation in Europe, which is... Uh, following, you know, enormous crises over the recent couple of years or several years. Uh, and what happened in Spain last week is that, uh, on the 6th of June actually, Spain's Banco Popular, which is a major Spanish bank, was declared bust by the EU authorities and it was wound up. 
um, the ECB, the European Central Bank, basically stepped in on the evening of that, uh, the 6th of June, and declared it failing or likely to fail, which gave it the ability under their new uh, banking recovery and resolution regime, which we'll explain what that is in a moment, which came in at the beginning of last year, that gave them the authority uh, to step in, basically shut it down, and they went through a whole process whereby that was resolved. Um, it was actually, they, the ECB orchestrated its sale, the sale of this bank, to Banco Santander, which is Spain's biggest bank and the 10th largest bank in the world, for one euro. So it was basically, you know, pulled onto the banks of this other bigger bank, swallowed up. Now, Banco Popular was riddled with bad real estate debt to the tune of 37 billion euro and a total of 150 billion euro in toxic debts total. So this is not actually a good thing for um, Banco Santander. Um, there'd been runs on Banco Popular over the recent days. All the lines of liquidity it had available had been completely exhausted. Its shares had lost half their value in just a few days. I mean, it was a goner. Uh, what, the other thing, the key thing that the ECB did is they conducted what's known as a bail-in, which is where since um, the GFC there's been this big thing about how taxpayers shouldn't be on the hook for um, bailing out banks. And therefore, instead of that, this idea of bail-in was introduced whereby the uh, deposits and or uh, bonds and certain other assets would be actually bailed in to save the bank, uh, so confiscated from ordinary investors. Well, in, in 2013, it went further, at least in that Cyprus, they, the, the government well, basically reorganised two banks into a good bank and a bad bank, and the depositors lost their funds above 100,000 mm. euro. So this was actually an attempt to, through bail-in, <coughs> steal people's banking yeah. deposits. So that's been done historically. Yeah. There's more of a tendency these days to issue instruments like financial instruments which are bail-inable, mm -hmm. which means that they are grabbed first instead of the deposits. And that's the tendency because it's so in unpopular yeah. to grab people's They deposits. create a specific bond and in the case of Spain they're called COCO bonds or contingent convertible bonds. And in the case of Banco Popular, those are the ones that were bailed in. So stockhold, actually stockholders were wiped out by 100% clearly. Tier 1 and Tier 2 bonds, which are these cocoa bonds or bail-in bonds, uh, they were all completely mm -hmm. wiped out. But the depositors and senior bondholders um, were you know, saved for the moment that gets transferred into Banco Santander. Um, some people had their um, bonds transferred into shares and stocks in the new bank, in Banco Santander. So it was kind of a hybrid version of um, what's been proposed. But nonetheless, the ECB were gloating over the fact that um, this was the first major bank that was bailed in and the model works and so forth. I mean, not to mention the fact that just a week earlier, there'd been a decision which was um, reached between the EU and Italy not to do a bail-in to the oldest bank in the world, Italy's Monte de Pasca di Siena, um, and there was an agreement that under an exemption in the bail-in rules that uh, MPS Bank could actually be bailed out, that there could be um, state government funds put in to save the bank uh, just to, because the bank was classified as still being solvent, that that could happen as a temporary measure to keep the financial system of Italy going. Um, 
So they were happy to announce in the wake of this Spanish banking crisis that, oh, well, you know, even though it didn't work in Italy, the system works, this, you know, this will work. But um, we've had a fight over stopping bail-in in Australia, Craig. Where does that stand for us here? Well, presently, at least the APRA and the regulators have allowed these hybrid bonds to be issued by the banks. Now, these hybrid bonds issue at they pay seven and a half, eight percent interest, very high interest rates. But see, this is part of the global process of trying to stop bail bail uh, outs. Mm. That if there is a problem with the bank, the very first things that go are those instruments. These gobbled up. There's a thing called total, total loss absorbing capacity that the the Bank of International Settlements and others talk about the Financial Stability Board. Now, the total loss absorbing capacity means those as those liabilities that can be written off in the case of a bank going bad. And this is exactly what you've got with these uh, hybrid bonds. You know, the banks have been issuing a lot of them, and so that the, the, if, there, if the banks go bad, the deposits are so-called left alone. Now, all of this is contingent. <laughs> upon there not being a massive global financial crisis, which we had in 2008. And which, all the banks collapse And all, all the banks months. collapse at the same time. Now, you have to remember back in 2008, we had Joe Hockey, the then treasurer, saying it wasn't possible for a global financial crisis. We got that in writing for him, yet within a month, we had the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty amazing. Uh, these sorts of... Uh, policies as you see, you know, bail-in was seen to be the solution, <coughs> but it couldn't be used in Italy because it would have brought yeah. down the entire system. What you've had in Spain is Banco Santander has been tapped on the shoulder and said, you can take over this bank to preserve the financial stability mm, of the mm. system. Here in Australia, I can guarantee you that if we had a smaller bank or a credit union, actually all the credit unions have been made into banks now, if one of those credit unions was to go down, you, you get a you know, the Treasurer yeah. must be tap onto the shoulder of, uh, of the Commonwealth Bank and say, you gobble that bank up. Mm -hmm. You won't even hear about it. It'll just get taken over as if some sort of a normal merger. Because what they're terrified about is loss of confidence in the system, first and foremost, but maintaining, therefore maintaining financial stability of the system across the board. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what they're more concerned about at this time. And I think what we talked about in the first segment, that the, you know, the banks there's a huge popular dissent against them. The politicians are beginning to reflect that and we're seeing that with bail-in too where uh, APRA's putting out a paper on how the banks have to maintain stability in the coming period and it's been leaked that they probably won't even include mandatory bail-in bonds. So there's moves in that direction. The, now, the solution to this, Lisa, is to go with Glass-Steagall, to separate out the legitimate necessary commercial banking system that funds and provides credit for the real economy, protect it at all costs, and protect people's deposits. All the other stuff, the merchant banking, the investment bank, stockbroking houses, investment insurance companies and so forth that are part of the big banks today, they can still exist but they operate on a different set of rules and they do not have access to depositors' funds. Yeah, we're going to take a break but we'll talk about how Australia can make those decisions itself next. Welcome back to the CEC Report. We're now discussing Anglo-American order in disarray, time for Australian independence. Now, given this 
global financial crisis and our own economic state, this country has to start making decisions about our future. And for a long time, we've just cruised along on the coattails of both uh, the United States and the United Kingdom. But as everyone's aware, we don't need to tell you, there are dramatic changes occurring in both of those countries. You know, you've got Trump in the United States, despite many problems, who's challenging ongoing wars, free trade, the green agenda, um, there's motion towards Glass-Steagall. And then in the United Kingdom now, after the results of the election, which we didn't know um, on last week's show, you have dramatic changes there. Now, Jeremy Corbyn didn't win, although, again, that was the definition of narrow because he only lost by 2,000 votes across seven seats out of 650 seats. And it resulted in a hung parliament, which, you know, none of the experts saw coming as usual. Um, you've got the fact that the Queen's speech has been delayed and when it occurs, this is where basically May determines if she has the right to govern. If that speech uh, doesn't pass, if it doesn't get voted up, Jeremy Corbyn actually has the ability to then try to form a government. So, so, the, so the Queen's speech that she gives is a speech written and presented to the UK Parliament which has mm. to be voted up before mm. she can give it. Yeah. And if it doesn't get voted up, it means that Jeremy Corbyn has a yeah. right then to try and form government. Exactly, to give his own speech and see if that gets voted up. Um, so this is quite a dramatic situation. And, you know, since the election, actually, the Labor membership increased by 150,000 members. And they're now, they've got 800,000 members. They're aiming for a million member party. They've had the youth come out in massive numbers. So this is a real revolution that's occurring here. The apologies that have been flowing from key figures in the Labor Party that completely underestimated Jeremy Corbyn, all the media, you know, the people that said he was unelectable, which we talked about last week. Um, this, is, this is rife. Now, they're already talking about new elections, even if May does create a government, um, you know, by building a coalition. And Corbyn, the Corbyn team is campaigning for a new election right now, and particularly in those marginal seats that he narrowly lost. So with our allies in complete flux, the question is, we have to start making decisions for ourselves. Now, as we've talked about many times on the show, the key route to a future for Australia is orienting to China's Belt and Road Initiative. But over the recent uh, days and weeks, we have seen a massive barrage of propaganda against China, which is designed to stop us going in that direction. The Australian Financial Review uh, said on the 7th of June, Russian interference in the American presidential election may be the most brazen assault by an authoritarian power on democratic institutions, but it is not the only one. And it proceeded to go on, as we've seen, you know, a plethora of media coverage over the recent days about China wanting to interfere in Australia's foreign policy and influence our politics. You know, they're using donations, of course, which go, as always, to both parties. Of course, this is nothing new. Foreign donations are given, you know, from all over the world to influence our policies. Especially Britain, Elisa. Well, exactly. One of the biggest ones, I believe. Um, so the Chinese are just utilising the existing system. But I'll make the point, yes, China does want to influence our policy for peace and development. So, Craig, what should Australia do? Well, I think it's illustrated this way, Elisa. China's building 20,000 kilometres of high-speed rail. Right, they've just opened the largest waterways in the world. Australia doesn't have one kilometre of high-speed rail and we constantly have water problems in this country. Isn't it obvious what we have to do? Mm. I mean, the neoliberal agenda of the last 40 years has failed. The 
banking system has failed. We need a new system and this is the way that we have to go. But like in the UK, the establishment is terrified about what Jeremy Corbyn represents for real change. Mm. So even with the UK and the US moving, we've still got the same old blinkers on we have to get rid of. So call in for a copy of the alert. Thanks for joining us and tune in again next week.